From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In the midst of a pandemic and economic meltdown, where corporations keep winning, progressives say the real fight for 15 is on. We don't have a lot of time here. The midterms are in two years. We need to show people that their lives are appreciably better, that we can get control of the virus, and that we can put money in people's pockets. And long before Colin Kaepernick, Black athletes like Jack Johnson and Joe Gans unleashed boxing as a weapon against white supremacy. We speak to historian Gerald Horn about his new book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Boxing, in some ways, is once again a kind of metaphor for that violence that lurks just beneath the surface when one talks about a system of capitalist exploitation. All that and much more coming up. Well, after the theater of impeachment, the Biden administration's flurry of executive actions, and now its maiden missile strike in the Middle East, Congress is finally voting on Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. The House of Representatives is expected to pass today a version of the measure that includes a raise in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The minimum wage portion of the package may be stripped out in order to ensure passage in the Senate, but with Bernie Sanders as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, he is bringing into the Senate the energy of grassroots movements like Fight for 15, the Poor People's Campaign, and Our Revolution that detail how large corporations pay so little that their employees can work 40 hours a week and still qualify for food stamps and Medicaid. Terrence Wise, a McDonald's worker from Kansas City, shared his story Thursday about how McDonald's profits off of poverty wages. You should never have to work multiple jobs in the United States and have nowhere to sleep. And that was before the pandemic. Since COVID-19, it's gotten harder. In March, my hours were cut from 40 to 28, and some of my co-workers were taken off the schedule entirely. My family and I had been evicted and had to move in with relatives. We had 11 people in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. During the lockdown, McDonald's gave me a piece of paper to show the police in case I got pulled over. It said I was an essential employee. But I can tell you they treat us more like second-class citizens than essential workers. I work for McDonald's, the second largest corporation in America, and still rely on food stamps and Medicaid. I don't receive as much as I did in food stamps when I was making eight, nine dollars an hour, but I still need help. I want to stand on my own. I want to provide my girls with three meals a day and give them opportunities I didn't have. I don't want to go to the supermarket with my kids and pull out my benefit card to pay for food. My check should handle that. This is what generational poverty looks like in America. For weeks, Democrats have been waiting on a decision from the unelected Senate parliamentarian 
to rule on whether the minimum wage hike can be included in the relief package as part of the budget reconciliation process. Well, on Thursday night, the parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, ruled that the minimum wage cannot be included in the package. Anticipating this possible decision, progressives in Congress and grassroots organizations around the country have been pressing hard this week for the Senate to overrule the parliamentarian if necessary. Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State told MSNBC that Democrats must deliver on promises made to the American people. Democrats made a promise to people across this country that we were going to raise the minimum wage, that we were going to put money in people's pockets. It's been 12 years since we've raised the minimum wage. And if we're going to make those promises, we have to be able to deliver on them. Because I'll tell you what, in two years, when people vote in the midterms, you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm sorry, we couldn't raise the minimum wage because the parliamentarian ruled that we couldn't do it. That's not going to fly. So whether it's (laughs) overruling the parliamentarian or whether it is reforming the filibuster so we can actually pass a minimum wage bill, I think it is important that we use every tool in the toolbox. Truth be told, Even if the parliamentarian's ruling had gone the other way, Democrats were likely going to be sunk by a member of their own party. West Virginia's Joe Manchin says that $15 an hour, even incrementally by 2025, is too much for his state, which is one of the poorest states in the country. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Thursday night that Biden will work with leaders in Congress to determine the best path forward because No one in this country should work full-time and live in poverty. In D.C., the same issues of social justice around how our tax dollars will be spent and meeting human needs during the pandemic are front and center. Chantel James has our first report. The ACLU DC hosted a forum on why the DC budget is a big deal. Speakers from Bread for the City, DC Fiscal Policy Institute, and the DC Council Office of Racial Equity led a community discussion on what's at stake with the council's passage of this year's budget. Brian McClure explains the impact of the fact that DC has been denied statehood on the budget. Statehood would mean that Congress would have their hands out of the affairs of the district. Congress likes to use this trick they, or mechanism called riders that they slide into the federal appropriations. Now, these riders are extremely problematic. So after we pass laws, after we then invest uh, in the budget, Congress can still slide in riders that say, well, no, you can't regulate, you can't regulate cannabis, for example, or You can't control your own gun legislation or, you know, other policies such as uh, the right to die, which council passed a few years ago when Congress stepped in. And so even when we get down to abortions, women's rights, we see how Republicans, you know, always try to step in and also Democrats to raise questions and try to tell the district what they can and can't do. The panel also explained why deprioritizing homelessness and mental health in the budget to allocate more resources for police harms the community. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And our second report from D.C. is about the Cancel the Rents movement, 
which is still going strong. Lydia Curtis has the latest. Momentum is rising in support of canceling rents and mortgages for residents of the District of Columbia during the coronavirus pandemic and economic crisis. Those who are behind in rent and mortgages could be facing evictions and foreclosures when the health emergency is lifted. In addition to the groups that have been organizing Cancel the Rent rallies since the spring, a neighborhood commission, ANC5E, in Northeast D.C., recently passed a unanimous resolution urging the D.C. Council to draft and pass legislation entitled District of Columbia Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Bill. A mock-up of the legislation was submitted along with the resolution. Activist Maurice Cook, executive director of Serve Your City, said he is committed to getting other ANCs to do the same. Serve Your City is among the groups working with residents fighting displacement in Brookland Manor, a 535-unit affordable rental property in Northeast D.C. Brookland Manor residents said this week that the current redevelopment plan for Brookland Manor by owner RIA, formerly Mid-City, does not include one-for-one replacement of three, four, and five-bedroom units and falls 100 units short of their desired goal, leaving large families out of the future plans for the buildings. And they refuse to commit to a no-displacement voucher strategy. They are protesting the refusal of Ward 5 D.C. Council member Kenyon McDuffie to take a vocal stand against RIA's harassment and displacement tactics and is asking for the city to take back the $47 million subsidy that was allocated to RIA in the 2020 budget. Resident Council Association President Minnie Elliott has this to say. Now, I'll think go back with McDuffie because McDuffie is very much aware of all the things that have happened in the past. The thing with him was that he was going to be a part of it and that Mid-City was going to be a part enabling the people to be part of the rebuilding of the property and they would be able to stay. So that is really our big issue and our support with that now is that they have gone back on this. They've even given, the mayor have even given money to them over here affordable housing, but then they turn around and they buying other properties to build up. And they are still, people are still being moved out and not able to stay here. Brooklyn Manor residents are joining other Ward 5 groups to hold a virtual protest on Tuesday, March 2nd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. You may tune in at bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Where's Kenyon, W-H-E-R-E-S-K-E-N-Y-A-N, or call 202-299-6647 for more information. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. Congress is still investigating the January 6th attack at the Capitol. And perhaps knowing that they need to act quickly in the coming months, lawmakers are juggling a full schedule of other legislation, too. On Thursday, acting Capitol Hill Police Chief Yogananda Pittman called for continued high security around the building because of ongoing threats. We know that the insurrectionists that attacked the Capitol 
weren't only interested in, in attacking members of Congress and officers. They wanted to send a symbolic message to the nation as a, who was in charge of that legislative process. We know that members of the militia groups that were present on January 6th have stated their desires that they want to blow up the Capitol and kill as many members as possible uh, with a direct nexus to the State of the Union, which we know that date has not been identified. Congressional hearings on the January 6th insurrection are expected to continue during the week of March 1st with epi- with officials from the FBI and other agencies scheduled to testify. Also on Wednesday, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was reintroduced by Representatives Karen Bass of California and Jerry Nadler of New York. The act includes police reform measures and proposed changes to qualified immunity for police officers. The proposed law was introduced two days after a damning report was released about the death of Elijah McClain. McClain is the 23-year-old musician and massage therapist who in August 2019 was tackled and choked by Aurora, Colorado police before paramedics injected him with a powerful sedative. He suffered a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital where he was declared brain dead and then taken off life support six days later. The report, the result of an independent investigation by legal and medical professionals outside of Aurora, says point blank that the three police officers, Jason Rosenblatt, Randy Rodima, and Nathan Woodyard, had no legal basis to even stop Lesmore Frisk violently detain or put a chokehold on Elijah. The report begins, quote, The body-worn camera audio, limited video, and major crimes interviews with the officers tell two contrasting stories, end quote. On the one hand, the officer's statements on the scene and a subsequent recorded interview suggest that the officers wanted to paint the picture of a violent and relentless struggle. But on the other hand, the report says the limited video and the audio from the body-worn cameras reveal that Mr. McLean was actually surrounded by officers, all larger than he, crying out in pain, apologizing, explaining himself, and pleading with the officers while handcuffed on the ground, being choked to death. The report goes on to explain how the investigation into McLean's death was botched, with the major crime investigators asking leading questions of the officers to produce so-called quote-unquote magical language that is used in court to absolve police of any wrongdoing. The incident was never referred to internal affairs investigators, and the investigation by the Aurora Police Department's Force Review Board was cursory and summary at best, the report said. Elijah's mother, Shanine McLean, told the Denver CBS affiliate this week that the report only confirmed what she and activists have been saying for the past year and a half. I feel good knowing that my son's name is cleared. I feel good knowing that everybody can see the truth now that Aurora, Colorado does employ killers and then they do what they can to cover it up. I want the police officers to be charged. I want the firefighters to be charged. Everybody that stood there and watched and did nothing to de-escalate needs to be charged. I miss his smile. I miss his laugh. I miss him. I just miss him. 
Though the Aurora inquiries into McLean's death were a sham, they were used by a county district attorney to conclude that the officers and paramedics were innocent of any wrongdoing. Since then, though, four activists at Little In-House, Joel Northam, Terrence Roberts, and Eliza Lucero, who organized peaceful protests for justice for McLean, are facing up to 50 years in prison on trumped-up charges. The activists are being supported by the National Committee for Justice in Denver. You can connect with them at denverdefense.org. And this week on February 25th, people around the country mark the one-year anniversary of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, who was jogging near Brunswick in Glynn County, Georgia, when he was pursued and shot and killed by Travis McMichael and his father Gregory. People around the country participated in Run With Maud actions by jogging in his honor. At a vigil in D.C., those attending spoke about how the freedom of black people to enjoy simple pleasures like jogging have been impacted by Arbery's murder. Ahmaud Arbery is my same exact age. There's no reason that I shouldn't feel safe or comfortable being able to jog around my neighborhood without the threat of someone thinking that I committed a crime or that I'm on my way to commit a crime and decide, okay, we're just gonna shoot you. It's not okay. Um, it's just a reflection of systemic racism and the complete and the whole entire system. Ahmaud Aubrey was 25 years old when he was murdered and Elijah McClain would have turned 25 this week on Thursday, February 25th. Those are some of the headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, 
Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to the show, Gerald, and congratulations on your book. Thank you. Well, Gerald, since the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, we've returned to the subject of the white mob as a recurring feature of white supremacy in the United States. And so I had the idea of the mob, mob violence, and mob think as I read your new book on boxing. And you remind us in the book that when Jack Johnson defeated Jim Jeffries in 1910, it inspired racist attacks and counterattacks. You wrote, quote, In the future birthplace of Muhammad Ali, Euro-Americans attacked Negroes for their outward enthusiasm, hailing Johnson's triumph, and in response, Negroes struck back with vigor in Louisville. A Carson City periodical captured the tensions of the time as it reported breathlessly on the, quote, general movement in most of the large cities to suppress the showing of the fight films in many of the big cities, especially in the South, where the Negro population ranks high in numbers, the authorities are putting the ban on the fight pictures, fearing that said images further swell the chests of the colored men, end quote. So reading this portion of the book opened up for me the whole bigger issue of the role that sports play outside the arena in American life to this day, right down to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee as a response, as a resistance to police terror in our communities. But you present in this book how the black boxer Jack Johnson and actually before him another boxer, Joe Gans, were the pioneers in using sports and their athleticism as a weapon against white supremacy. So I thought you could start by telling us about how they struck that first blow and more about the reaction and the environment then. Well, when you talk about black boxing and when you talk about boxing in general, you're really talking, in essence, about masculinity. You're really talking about, in essence, about patriarchy, because in some sense, patriarchy is the keystone of the arch that is white supremacy. And you're also talking about the fact that during the battle days, the days of slavery and Jim Crow in particular, there was this fallacy that was quite common that suggested that black men in particular were yellow-bellied cowards, that they were not real men, because so-called real men did not allow themselves, quote-unquote, to be enslaved or to be subjected to third-class citizenship. Obviously, this put a temper-sized chip on the shoulder of many black men who felt that they had to defeat this fallacy. And I think therein, you begin to see why early on, black men in particular began to excel not only in boxing, but in other sports that involved a kind of controlled masculinity and a controlled aggression. Think of professional football. You reference Colin Kaepernick the San Francisco 49ers former quarterback, uh, he was part of that 70% of National Football League athletes who were of African origin. And interestingly enough, what I try to do in this book is suggest that it's not only a product of slavery and Jim Crow in North America, that to a certain degree, you could trace this all the way back to Africa. What I mean is, is that 
with the onset of the unlimited African slave trade, you began to see the development of certain kinds of martial arts, not only in places like Madagascar, a node of the African slave trade in southeastern Africa, but Angola, southwest Africa, which has produced more than its share, so-called, of enslaved Africans, particularly in North America, where you might recall the leading prison in Louisiana is called Angola State Prison, not least because so many Angolans uh, have been incarcerated there, people of Angolan descent. And so there, in Angola, you began to see the development of this martial arts called capoeira that involves combat using one's fist and one's hands, or one's hands and one's feet, I should say, and it develops uh, congruent with the rise of the African slave trade and, of course, has been taken to the nth degree in Brazil, which was also a repository for many enslaved Africans from Angola. It not only stops there, but when you talk about the era of slavery and Jim Crow, uh, you have to talk about the so-called battle royal. Uh, this is the process whereby for the titillation and entertainment of the slaveholder, they would put eight or nine black young men in the ring blindfolded and have them go at each other, and the one that emerged triumphant would receive some sort of prize or some sort of award. The battle royal continued after slavery ended, and in fact, the lightweight champion, black American from Augusta GA, speaking of Bo Jack in the 1940s and early 1950s, he got his start in the pugilistic arts by winning repeatedly in the battle royal. So once again, you can't begin to understand uh, this phenomenon of the black boxer without understanding uh, masculinity and the felt necessity on the part of many black men to try to overcome these stereotypes and fallacies. But interestingly enough, once <laughs> these black American men began to excel in boxing, then the script flipped, and the idea was floated that they were actually beasts. Sonny Liston, who you may recall is portrayed in the recent movie One Night in Miami, which focuses on the man who becomes Muhammad Ali, you had illiterate sports writers in the early 1960s who referred to him explicitly as a beast, as a brute, compared him to a gorilla, uh, for example, and that kind of a stereotype is still with us. I should also say that this book also deals with a tributary of what I'm talking about, which is the fact that women, particularly black women who have had their own battles and belts with the male supremacy, uh, oftentimes felt the need to develop themselves in the pugilistic arts. You might recall that the daughter of Muhammad Ali, for example, wound up being a championship boxer. And I should also say that this book deals with another tributary of what I'm talking about, which is that in the 1920s and 1930s in particular, you had a string of Jewish American uh, championship boxers, and in their oral histories, they repeatedly discuss that one of the reasons why they had to learn to use their fists was because they were always battling their Irish-American and Italian-American counterparts. And interestingly enough, in the concentration camps in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, you saw the administrators of these camps 
these death camps, oftentimes for their titillation and entertainment, would put the Jewish boxers in the ring to go at each other. So therein we come full circle. At some point reading the book, I made a note of something. I was kind of laughing as I wrote it down. And you wrote the International White Hope Association. And so I was wondering, well, like, for how long and to what extent were white people looking for someone to beat Jack Johnson? And apparently you wrote that they even looked in China. I didn't know that Caucasians were in China. And I wondered how this was tied up with the notions of masculinity that you were just talking about. And I guess there were two other things about that. But the one I'll mention is the fact that at some point, boxing became very tied to kind of honing men to fight in these wars and that it was considered good training or good or uh, some type of sport for men to engage in who they wanted to be soldiers on the field. Well, for the longest, boxing was outlawed in this country. It was seen as the equivalent of bear baiting, for example, or cockfighting, for example, which is sports that are still subjected to penalties, legal penalties in this country, although you still see cockfighting in other countries. But what happens is that the U.S. ruling elite decides that at a certain point that boxing as you suggested, could toughen up young men and it could be sort of a a primer with regard to honing their skills to become warriors, warriors on the many battlefields where you've seen U.S. imperialism flex its muscles uh, over the the decades. And with regard to uh, the so-called white hope, and the search for so-called white hope in China, I think that the inference you should draw from that is that it was not only a a search for so-called white hope, it was a a search to find someone who would put the Negro in his place. And if that were a person from China, so be it, as long as this Negro was put in his place. And obviously, at least it's obvious to me at least, uh, this stems from the fact that from the onset of settler colonialism in North America hundreds of years ago, you have this conflict uh, between the enslaved population, which was involved in a militant class struggle, against the enslaving population. And in Haiti, as we know, the enslaved population eventually triumphed. And I think it's not an exaggeration to suggest that there was a real fear that the black population, the enslaved population, could triumph in North America, as difficult as that may be for some to believe in 2021. And so, therefore, when you began to see this string of black boxing champions, uh, symbolized by Jock Johnson, the notion was afloat that this was a threat not only to male supremacy, because the heavyweight boxing champion was seen somehow as the emperor of masculinity, if I can use that phrase, but was also seen as a challenge to white supremacy as well, seen as a challenge to ongoing labor exploitation of cheap black labor. And so that unleashed this long-time, long-term effort to find a so-called white hope. 
And as I talk about in the book, even with the eclipse of Jack Johnson, who eventually was jailed, not least because of the challenge that he presented uh, to white supremacy, uh, he was jailed circa 1919-1920, the search for a white hope obviously continued during the reign of Joe Lewis, the black heavyweight champion in the 1930s and 1940s. It continued even during the reign of Floyd Patterson, a black American with roots in New York and North Carolina who was the heavyweight champion in the 1950s to a degree in the early 1960s. Interestingly enough, when he was defeated by a Swedish boxer by the name of Ingemar Johansson, even though Floyd Patterson was a U.S. national, from President Eisenhower on down, there seemed to be satisfaction with the fact that a Swedish boxer a man, as used to be said in London, of, quote, pure European descent, unquote, had prevailed. And certainly, the reign of Muhammad Ali led to a repeated search for a so-called Great White Hope, which had another aspect to it, because of Muhammad Ali's profession of the Muslim faith, it tended to unleash a search for a Christian fighter uh, who could put the Muslim in his place, and that brings us to George Foreman, who's still in the land of the living, who had these titanic battles, including the thriller in the Congo, or the rumble in the jungle, excuse me, the rumble in the jungle in the Congo, in the, in the, or then called Zaire in the 1970s, because George Foreman really not only played the patriot card, that is to say, waving the red, white, and blue flag right. uh, early on in the ring, as opposed to Muhammad Ali, who was scorned as a so-called draft dodger. But also, George Foreman styled himself as a Christian minister. And so that helped to strike a chord, because as you know, uh, there have been these titanic battles between Christians and Muslims uh, going back to 1095, when the Crusades were launched by Western European Christendom to take back the area that they called the Holy Land, which continued for hundreds of years. So boxing, in other words, is more than just a sport. It's really a metaphor for larger forces. You know, when you were speaking, I actually thought about some of the, you know, sports that I watch and how, for example, when Serena and Venus Williams played at Indian Wells several years ago, how... Uh, there was a really big controversy because the crowd seemed to start to cheer for the the white player who was, I think, not even from the United States. And they didn't go back to that tournament for a really long time. And how very often in those settings, you would see how uh, players from other countries, if they were white and they they might be getting the better of the Williams sisters, the uh, Americans would start to cheer for them. It's not an exact comparison, but I know I've seen in my own sports, you know, watching, being a fan, some of that same type of dynamic you talked about. But before we go any further, we're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground. We'll be right back. Mama, I'm paranoid from the police guys. Because the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? When I... I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. How many more sons, how many must die? How many must march with a protest sign? They take my life, take my life, I was unarmed. 
Or singing it every day It's the same song Oh no, they And this is On the Ground, and I'm speaking with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. And Gerald, before the break, we were talking about the International White Hope Association and some of the notions about masculinity kind of tied up with, with boxing. And there was another part in the book I was really curious about, and that was the rise of Nevada as a place that at first allowed blacks and whites to box. And there was also this story there about how boxing played or didn't play a role in what could have been, you know, labor solidarity there that was crushed. Well, yes. Uh, Nevada has a very stormy history. Uh, the Wobblies, the IWW, who, as you know, were militant trade unionists, had a foothold in the mines and in the fields of Nevada. Nevada early on styled itself as the sin state. Uh, that's one of the reasons why today there's gambling, e- even there's legalized prostitution, believe it or not in certain counties in Nevada to this very day. And they considered themselves to be in that same vein when they allowed uh, boxers to enter the ring, even though one could be of African ancestry and another could be of European ancestry, which was against the law in many states, and of course was against the law in Dixie throughout the uh, 1950s. It took a U.S. Supreme Court decision to allow black and white boxers to go at each other by the late 1950s, early 1960s. And there was also a fear, however, that allowing this interracial boxing matches presented a very dangerous symbol because it suggested that perhaps uh, workers of different ancestries could also work shoulder to shoulder just like they were in the ring shoulder to shoulder as well. And so ultimately what that did is that it led to Nevada in the early 20th century uh, seeking to ban interracial boxing, basically giving up the advantage that it had over other states. There was also a fear that when you had these black boxers like Jack Johnson 
who were winning what were considered to be uh, handsome subs in the ring, that that would make them attractive to women who were defined as white, and then that would disrupt the existing patriarchy. It would disrupt the existing system of male supremacy come white supremacy. So that was another reason to uh, try to outlaw boxing across so-called racial lines. Now, when you mention the Williams sisters and the difficulty <laughs> that they have experienced in terms of, at least early on, in terms of, of winning Euro-American fans, in one book I wrote some years ago, I talked about uh, these black bullfighters south of the border. For example, in Mexico, and the Euro-American competitors, uh, fans would uh, root for the bull. It would be interesting to trace when it became fashionable for the Euro-American audience to root in the Olympics for black American athletes against, say, Soviet Union competitors. Certainly, by the 1930s, it's fair to say that the Brown Bomber, the black boxer Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion, he attracted a fair amount of Euro-American support when he boxed the fascist Max Schmeling, the German boxer who, of course, knocked him out once. And uh, he also uh, attracted a, a goodly number, speaking of Joe Lewis, of black American boxers uh, when he defeated the Italian fighter, Primo Cornero, because this fight was taking place against the backdrop of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in the 1930s, and that led to clashes in New York, it led to clashes in New Orleans between black Americans and Italian Americans voting or supporting one boxer or another. And so, once again, what this illustrates is that uh, boxing is more than a game, it's more than a sport, it's really a metaphor for these wider and larger forces. I should also say that with regard to Nevada, uh, as listeners may know, you really can't talk about Nevada today without talking about organized crime. Uh, it, it's so notorious that it's been a staple of the movies. I mean, think of Warren Beatty as Bugsy Siegel, for example and how Las Vegas takes off after 1945, after World War II, as a mob citadel, and takes off even further after the Cuban Revolution, 1959, when the mob is wiped out in Havana, and they move their assets into Las Vegas, and to a degree into uh, Reno. And so, with the mob moving into Nevada, uh, they're looking once again for spectacles, such as these boxing matches, which tend to attract the ballers and the shot callers, as they say nowadays, <laughs> and therefore generates quite a bit of box office. It also generates a lot of cash receipts at the box office, which is what organized crime is looking for, because organized crime is also always looking for ways to launder money. So boxing, in some ways, has been a sink of corruption, and I think it's fair to say that if you began to look with more careful scrutiny at other sports, you would also find a similar sink of corruption as well. Well, finally, I wanted to ask you about boxing 
almost as kind of the perfect venue to illustrate the budding of heads, I should say, between white supremacy and capitalism. And I thought about this because after the Jack Johnson victory over Jim Jeffries that we mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, these athletic officials in various states actually banned fights between black and white men because they did not want to see a black man victorious over a white man in the ring. But they could not stop the distribution of that new technology called film. And the film of the Jack Johnson fight was very popular, even though that film was also banned or it was attempted to be banned. So I was thinking that, as you were just mentioning, the corruption, that the money, the profit motive, ultimately overcame the desire to kind of reinforce these images of white supremacy uh, in the ring or through sports? Well, I think that boxing is such a potent, powerful metaphor for capitalism that it was almost inevitable that it would overcome any sort of reluctance to see the sport uh, legalized or even to see the sport a feature of black and white boxers and of course that came not by fiat necessarily it came as a result of relentless struggle uh, by uh, black boxers in particular and when I speak about boxing as a kind of metaphor for capitalism when we're talking about boxing obviously we're talking about uh, relentless and brutal uh, labor exploitation uh, even though even Today, we've talked mostly about the bold-faced names, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, et al. But there are countless, countless, countless boxers uh, who never uh, earned a decent living from boxing and, in fact, left the ring brain-damaged or were carried out of the ring as a result of being killed in the ring. For example, I tell the story about the match in Madison Square Garden in New York in 1962 when Emil Griffith from the Virgin Islands uh, was called the homophobic slur by his uh, opponent, Benny Perret, whose roots were in Cuba. And as a result, when they got into the ring in 1962, Emil Griffith systematically executed him in the ring. Uh, Benny Perret was carried out of the ring dead. And that too, in a sense, was a kind of metaphor for the kind of oppression, the kind of exploitation that was not only a feature of boxing, but a feature of capitalism, too, needless to say. And obviously, when we're talking about boxing, we're talking about violence. And violence has been the glue that has kept this society together thus far, uh, because one recognizes that if one seeks to revolt, as black people and our allies have done heroically and historically for centuries, uh, the mailed fist of the state can be brought down like a hammer directly into your head. And boxing, in some ways, is once again a kind of metaphor for that violence that lurks just beneath the surface when one talks about a system of capitalist exploitation. Well, I think that will have to be it for our interview. I've kind of run out of time. 
I thank you for joining me. I've been speaking to On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, and his new book is, again, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing by International Publishers in New York City. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us there, support us there. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com. Our new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam. That's On the Ground, W, Esther Averam. And that's on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, the social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. Thank you to all those checking out the podcast and giving us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included I Still Can't Breathe by the Chester Children's Chorus and I Can't Breathe by the Crossroads featuring Chaz French. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you